0: For fifteen percent off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear.
1: Welcome to Inside the Hive. This is Emily Jane Fox. I'm here with my trusted co-host Joe Hagan. Hi, Joe.
2: Hi. I am here. We're here together. You know where we are. We're in one of those, um, like a log flume rides at the uh, at the park. Yeah, at the top. You're about to go down. It's October 1st as we record this. We are at the very top of the flume ride, about to go down the steepest part of it, down to whatever our destiny may be, in in a blue wave, possible, or some kind of other horror show alternative. But it does feel like we're at the top of a roller coaster and about to go down the biggest part of it, even though I would say this week we went down one of the roller coaster ride. We're through one loop, right? We went through one loop.
1: What a loop it was. We made it through our first presidential debate. I would say I feel I still feel physically ill from watching it. Yeah, it it made toxic. me feel it really was. It was the worst kind of debate that I've ever seen that I could have ever imagined. I think that we all went into it feeling like this is gonna be ugly. Maybe Trump will be a crazy bully, though he's a sneaky good debater or he had been a sneaky good debater in debates past. Uh, was Biden going to seem older than he is or be the oldest version of himself? There were, there were a lot of possibilities that we thought could be a little bit disastrous, but this was full-fledged disaster zone. I think that My real takeaway besides like the end of true civil discourse and the fact that there really were no winners was it didn't feel like it felt like Trump was so disrespectful to the process of this, which is not surprising because he's disrespectful to literally every single process. But it didn't feel like he was running even against Joe Biden. It felt like he was running against the candidacy, like he was running against the election. He's running and against democracy.
2: I mean, it, that's yes. what he's running against. That's his enemy. His enemy that's is the thing that like. will unseat him, which is democracy. I mean, I, the fascinating thing about it was people said, oh, it was a shit show. It was like a, a, a the opposite of a debate. It was not a debate. It was terrible. All those things are true. But it was a clear demonstration of the choice in this election. And uh, Gabe Sherman, our uh, trustee reporter at The Hive, Uh, had a piece out this week uh, with Trump people telling him, well, in fact, this is what he looks like behind the scenes. This is actually how he acts behind the scenes to his own staffers and to people in his orbit. So what we got to see was real, was the truthful, unvarnished, that's your guy. You want him? This is is what you're ordering up, right?
1: There are people in, in Trump world who I've talked to since the debate, and i talked to them directly after the debate and I, I honestly feel felt like the most this is a scientific term they felt like the most flustered that i've ever <laughs> heard them and it wasn't necessarily bad they just sort of didn't know which which way was up and how to explain what just happened to me and then by the time yesterday afternoon rolled around when i was making another round of calls um some of them privately admitted to me and said, "You could never, never quote me on this. Never say this. Never repeat this." And I'm going to repeat it here. <laughs> um, but that they were disgusted by it, that they felt it went a little too far, and to lose these people is is it, it means you you really got nothing left, right? But I don't. I really don't think that anything is going to change the election when it comes to debate, unless someone really, really does something that is horrendously bad. I don't think that, that you're going to have a debate perform- performance be the thing that decides this election. We're in the middle of a pandemic. The economy is wobbly. There's a Supreme Court seat on the line. Uh, Health care is possibly on the va- ballot, depending on how you look at it. And so I, I don't think that the debate performance is going to be the thing, though the, the numbers for the debates were incredibly high. I also thought, I don't know if you saw the ratings, but I... In my head as I was watching, I thought there's no way anyone makes it past the first half hour because it was so unpleasant to watch all of the interrupting. Mm -hmm. The moderator was completely absent. It was just, it was kind of vile. And I, I couldn't imagine if you weren't professionally paid to have to sit through the whole thing as you and I both were, then I don't know what the incentive was to stay tuned. But the ratings didn't really dip. In the last 60 minutes, the last 30 minutes, everyone kind of stayed tuned. I was really surprised by that.
2: Yeah. Well, to go back to my log flume metaphor, I felt like we were all kind of covered in slime mm. after the first run. And as disgusting and horrible as it all was, again, pretty edifying. Now, one thing that um, didn't come up and didn't become really a uh, basis of argument, I mean, not many arguments lasted, um, during that quote unquote debate, but was this, um, Supreme Court nominee process that's about to come up. You know, there's been this question of whether that was going to become an election, uh, change agent. know, was, whether it would change people's minds one way or the other. And, you know, polls say they don't want him to nominate somebody at this point. Uh, we're talking about Amy Coney um, Barrett, but, um, and so, but soon she's going to be on everybody's TV screen, and there's going to be a nomination process, and there is this chance that Democrats get, Democrats get pulled into, uh, you know, having to uh, scrutinize her. And I wanted to point out um, that there was this really amazing piece of advice uh, that was posted on Facebook by this professor at uh, the University or Saint Mary's College. His name's Bill Svelmo, and. Uh, it just came across my Facebook feed as, you know, you see people's things are coming across. And he had advice for the Democrats on wh- how to uh, handle the nomination process. And it was a brilliant piece of advice. And I think I hope the Democrats take it.
1: What's we the should, advice?
2: Don't ask her about her views on abortion or healthcare or any speculative hypotheticals that she will never answer anyway. Right. Only ask her about Trump and things that he has done in the legality of them, from the emoluments clause to the Hatch Act to the Ukraine thing. Just use her and her nominating process to go through the laundry list of things that you can actually talk about. Do you believe this is legal? Let's go through this. Describe the Hatch Act to us. What does it mean? You're, you know, you're, you're a lawyer, you're a judge, you know, tell us what it means. So does this break that law? What about the emoluments clause and the fact that the Trump administration has used the government to line its own pockets with its hotels? Is that legal? Is that right? Tell us. And, you know, whatever she says, she can dance around and say whatever she wants, but use this nomination process as a campaign, you know, make it a part of a referendum on Trump because her nomination is a referendum on Trump in its own way. This is an
1: incredibly insightful piece of advice that will never see the light of day in that congressional hall because I have never in my life witnessed a least discipl- less disciplined group of people than congressional Democrats in 2020.
2: It's so uh, true and sad.
1: It is almost impossible to watch a big hearing like this because – There are great pieces of advice like the one you just repeated, and a lot of very smart people who say, stay on this message, stay on that message. And all those messages that they're being advised to stay on make so much practical sense. But they get in that hall, and the cameras go on, and the lights go up. And all they are interested in doing is their meme moment, their moment in the sun, their grandstanding opportunity. And while they may get their 90 seconds of fame out of this, what what the leaders of our Congress end up doing is descending the rest of us into oblivion. They miss the mark. They miss the moment. And it's such a waste of an opportunity to actually make a smart political move. You brought up the Hatch Act, and it makes me think of something that has been bothering me this morning. Um, so I'm just going to bring it up. Please. And I saw the first thing I saw this morning because Twitter knows you in some way. And so when you open your app, it says like things you may have missed or want to see or whatever it is. And the first thing in that, that little corralled moment of my Twitter feed was a tweet from Ivanka Trump saying, good morning, North Carolina. And it appears that she is campaigning in North Carolina. I think it was North Carolina. Um, Yesterday she was in Florida. She traveled with her father to the debate Ivanka Trump has a senior position in the White House, yet she is taking all this time away from her very high-profile role in the White House to appear on the campaign trail, which is a violation of what norms and practices have been, and laws, in fact. Um, Now, laws don't really apply to Ivanka Trump in this administration. The fact that she works in the White House is illegal because for 50 years before She walked in the building. It was against a federal anti-nepotism statute for her to take a job in the West Wing. But never mind that pesky law. Never mind the emoluments clause that you brought up that, um, that her business was issued Patents from China and other foreign nations for her to market a brand with her own name slapped across the top of it. Never mind the fact that she still owns or still profits from the portion of the Trump International Hotel just five blocks away from the White House down Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, Never mind all of those pesky laws. Let's add in a a Hatch Act violation and let's let someone who is a senior member of this administration appear across the country on campaign stages as a surrogate for her father's campaign. Her explanation is, I'm taking off my White House hat and putting on my first daughter hat, which is a distinction no one could Mm -hmm. make because it makes no sense. The fact that you're not supposed to work in the White House because it's illegal and then using that as, as sort of a, a shield that you can wield and that you can throw up whenever you want to. It's just so offensive. And the fact that they feel as though they are so above the law, it reminds me of the fantastic reporting that the New York Times did on the president's taxes. And the one paragraph that stuck out to me like a sore thumb had to do with the fact that Ivanka Trump had been paid as both an employee and as a consultant on certain projects for the Trump yeah. Organization, which smells a whole lot like tax fraud to me. Um, she was paid a three quarters of a million dollars as a consultant for a project that she was also an executive on as a full-time employee for the Trump Organization. I mean, the fact that she at some point was not considered an employee by the Trump organization enough to be paid as a consultant, is news to me because I've covered her very closely for five years. And for those five years, the the fact that she was a integral senior member, executive vice president of the Trump organization is definitional to her. That is, I've read both books that she has written cover to cover probably three times each. I'm sorry. You're welcome to all of you. And it is so fundamental, elemental to who she is, that she has been this executive vice president to the Trump organization. If she is trying to use as an excuse, well, actually, I wasn't an executive. I was a consultant. First of all, that's bullshit. And second of all, everything she has said is a lie then. So it really, I don't know how it's not tax fraud. I'm very curious to see an explanation. So far, she has said nothing on it. And initially, I thought the beginning of the week was Yom Kippur and Ivanka Trump converted to Judaism and observes with her husband and his family. Uh, And this was sundown on Sunday evening, just an hour or two away from when the Times published this bombshell report uh, into sundown on Monday. And so I thought... Well, maybe she's keeping quiet because of that. And we'll hear a response from her on Tuesday morning. Tuesday morning came and went. And now she is, good morning, North Carolina. So I don't know that we'll hear a response from her. I'm desperate to hear one. I wonder if at some point laws start applying to her. And I don't know if that is when her father is voted out. I don't know if her father is reelected. Is it brought up four years later? But... But it will be brought
2: This is exactly uh, the point, um, which is, well, let's uh, take all these legal questions you're asking and present them to Amy Coney Barrett. Mm. She's supposedly familiar with the law. Let's ask her how she would adjudicate each of these situations. So I don't know if uh, Senator Patrick Leahy or Cory Booker or Kamala Harris listens to our podcast. I'm sure they do. Obviously. They, uh, They would really need to take some of this advice um, in fact, one of the other pieces of advice this guy gave was that uh, Kamala Harris be the only person asking questions for the Democrats. Oh, that's a great piece <laughs> of advice. Um, you have to
1: get this guy on the podcast.
2: Yeah. So, well, there we are.
1: I want I want life advice from him.
2: Yeah. Well, he you know one of his students. I posted this on uh, Twitter. I said, hey, check out this guy's advice. And some of his students were saying, oh, he's he's talking to us all these millennials and Zoomers or Zoomers I guess in college now. Um, he, that he went viral. He's so excited that he went viral. This professor. Oh, um, so I love that. Yeah. So you know, we're in a world in which uh, we can, we should be looking uh, to alternative areas for advice, and um, I think that uh, the Senate Democrats could use some fresh, fresh oxygen in their thinking.
1: Well, speaking of advice, we have a very special guest on this week, and. She gave some great advice for Joe Biden, for Democrats, for women in the workplace. It was such a fantastic conversation. We were lucky enough to have Valerie Jarrett on the podcast with us. Valerie Jarrett was, of course, a senior advisor in the Obama White House, a very close friend to both President Barack Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama. And we talked all about what to expect in the coming weeks about the The man she knows in Joe Biden, the, the man she has worked with so closely and uh, did work so closely with in the White House. We talked about, um, we talked about the Supreme Court. We talked about what it could mean for voters heading to the polls in November. We talked about uh, the stakes of the election, and what was really exciting to me was we also got to talk about female mentorships and what it is like. In this moment, when we're facing someone new coming on the Supreme Court, when we have a president who has completely demeaned women from the get-go, his administration has done nothing to make women feel more comfortable, more supported, uh, better about all of the things that we are facing collectively in this period of time. And it felt like uh, a really nice way to round out this trying week to to talk about something that is slightly off news but completely related and I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. We recorded it before the debate so there was some pre-debate speculation. There wasn't a reaction to what we saw but we really get into all of the things that we've been talking about in this conversation and all the things we're going to want to talk about in the weeks to come.
2: I can't wait to hear it. Let's listen.
1: Valerie Jarrett, thank you so much for coming and joining us on Inside the Hive this week. Welcome.
0: Thank you, Emily. It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: How are you holding up?
0: Well, thanks for asking. I'm holding up pretty well. I think everybody uses the caveat, all things considered. Sure. Um, (laughs) So I'm safe. My family's safe and well. That's all I could ask for.
1: Those are the important things, but we are also facing... So many other important things that, that feel, at least to me, less okay, particularly this week and as we are so close to the election and so much is happening in this world. I want to I wanna pick your brain on all of that, but I have to tell you, I have to make a confession. What's so that? I I was an intern in the White House in the summer of 2010. And as part of the intern program, we got to hear from all sorts of senior staffers, people at the very top of the of the rank in the White House. And you were one of the people that I got to hear from in that program. So this oh feels very full circle.
0: It is full circle. What department were you in?
1: I worked in cabinet affairs under Chris uh-huh. Liu, who was incredible. It was the best job I've ever had besides my current job.
0: Well, I'm <laughs> At, glad you had a good experience. I had the I best love talking with the interns
1: it It was such an incredible moment. I won't repeat what you told us because it was I think it was off the record, and I take those agreements very seriously. But I will say um, it was such a profound moment for me as a young woman to see someone like you uh, in such a pivotal role in the White House and I listened to the podcast that you did with your friend uh, First Lady Michelle Obama, and I heard you talk about the importance of having women mentors, and I listened to it, and I kept thinking about what you told me some 10 summers ago. And at this particular moment, after the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the uncertainty of what that will mean, um, the way that Breonna Taylor's death has been treated, the way that our current president speaks and treats women, I've never felt the need for that relationship, that kind of guidance, that the power of that female connection and relationship more strongly right now. Do you feel that or is it is it just me?
0: No, no, it's not just you. It's, it's not just me. It's almost every woman I speak with whom I speak says the same thing. I think in these really t- painful, challenging times, there's security in uh, being with people who are experiencing it the same way we are. And you mentioned Justice Ginsburg, and my goodness, what a extraordinary champion for equity and justice. And I remember beginning to follow her career when I was a young lawyer myself, like 35 years ago, when she was uh, advocating on behalf of women, fighting discrimination cases on behalf of women, and both on and off the bench, she devoted her life to making life easier for us. And so she's part of what has inspired me to want to continue that work is um, I believe the best way to mourn her is to continue the good fight. And Mm. when you are in that fight and you don't feel like you're alone in that fight, it makes the fight a little easier.
1: Sure. Sure. Something that, that stuck me in listening to your conversation with uh, first lady Michelle Obama was that she worked for you when you were both in Chicago and something she said, I've been thinking about a lot Um, at this particular stage in my life is that you didn't try to hide the fact that you were a mother who also had a very powerful job, that being a mother was part of who you are. And there is, of course, this myth of having it all. And that is, in fact, a myth. But what it's what it seemed like the former first lady took away and what I took away from your chat was that you you don't have it all, but you should be able to own what you have. Right that that's why having a female mentor is, in person, is is so important because you can glean the fact that you can both be a mother and be someone who cares about their, their work and is committed to both of those things at the same time. And being able to see that and see it in practice is such a valuable thing.
0: Yes, so Emily, I often say it's hard to be what you can't see. Mm. And, and earlier in my career, long before I met Michelle then Robinson, now Michelle Obama, former first lady, uh, was I worked in a climate where I didn't feel like I could bring my full self to work. I was about six months pregnant before I told anyone I was pregnant. Mm. Why? Because I was afraid they wouldn't take me as seriously if they thought I was gonna have this conflict between being a mom and being a lawyer. And it wasn't until I was in an environment where I discovered my voice, how to advocate for other people, and in so doing, I began to learn how to advocate for myself. And I had a really good role model. My mom was a working mom my entire life at a time when women were, it was unusual to work outside of the home. And she pushed against a lot of headwinds to do it, but she managed to do it in a way where I always felt I was her first priority. Mm. And uh, and she was quite intentional in how she did that. And so I tried to do the same thing for Laura once I realized I was in an environment where I could. And I think, well, look, many women are environments where they can't, but what you end up finding is, is that you are more productive if you can be your whole self. And the discussion you're talking about was when uh, we were, Michelle and I were meeting with a group of big developer business people and Laura called and I'd always said to my assistant, you have to put Laura's calls through whenever she calls, no matter who I'm with, whether the door is open or closed. And so... When she said, Laura's on the phone, I turned my back to the room, and they could overhear me going, oh, hi, sweetie. How are you? <laughs> okay? Is everything okay? And it only took a couple minutes, if that, but she needed that connection with me. And I said to one of my assistants who didn't put her call through one time, why didn't you put it through? And she said, well, she said it wasn't important. I said, you know what? I get to make that decision. If she's picked up the phone and called me, she thought it was important enough to call. So let me hear her voice, and I can tell whether it's a crisis or whether she just wants 30 seconds of her mom. What I did not realize at the time is is that Michelle was watching me. So in a sense, the behavior that my my mother had modeled for me, I was modeling for her. Mm. And, And I do believe now, which I didn't appreciate when I first finished school, You do have to set ground rules for yourself and for the people who are going to interact with you. And that if you are clear and you are competent at what you're doing, they will respect those ground rules. And so
1: Mm.
0: nobody ever objected because I took a call from my daughter because I was taking care of my business. Um, And so, and to your other question about having it all, yeah, I agree. You can't, you can't have it all at the same time, particularly if you're a woman when having it all means doing it all yourself. Right. Which is what we do to ourselves, oftentimes and other people do to us, but the question I prefer to ask is, when you look back over your life, did the various chapters add up to a whole? so there might be periods of your life where you're just totally focused on you know your job, and everything else sacrifices a little bit, and then there may be other times where family's important, or you have a you know you have a sick parent or a child that needs you, and so something has to give there. But if you are open about what's going on in your life with your family, like I used to take my daughter to my office with me so she could see where I was when I wasn't with her, kind of visualize it, right? Sure. That helped her. And then I also would, you know, as I said, photos of my family were all over my office. People, I wanted to talk to them about my family. And it's a way of developing a relationship with people. And I think we compartmentalize a little bit too much. And I'm not sure that's good for us personally or good for the enterprise.
1: Mm. You know, what you said about you not being able to be what you can't see, I think is so spot on. But we're still in a system where most of the people who create corporate culture, who create the political environment, most of the bosses, whether they're elected or appointed or they're just at the top of the corporate totem poles. They're men, right? So women don't really have the opportunity to see what it is like to be juggling all those things because women take on an inordinate amount of responsibility in the home and in the workplace. And so how can a male leader be a, an effective mentor to a woman in the workplace?
0: Well, a few things to that question. First of all, we need to change that. So yep the leadership isn't comprised of men. We're half the workforce, we're half the population, we're graduating from college at higher degree, higher levels than men. So we need to start to change that um, and get a critical mass because there is safety in numbers. But to your point about what should men do, I think they should begin by listening. A skill that doesn't always come naturally to them, but I think they need to listen. They need to talk to the women around them and say, What will it take for you to thrive in this environment? What have you observed in terms of either microaggressions or more blatant um, discrimination that is getting in your way? What do we have to do structurally to enable you to thrive? And so, you know, is it ensuring we have equal pay? I would say yes. Do you have paid leave and paid sick days? I would say you better. Is the culture free from sexual harassment? You bet it better be. Is it an inclusive culture, which is different than just playing lip service to diversity? Are you really creating paths of opportunity for people who don't look just like the CEO? Mm. Uh, Because because everybody else is looking at the leadership team too, not just the CEO, but those in the C-suite, those on the board. And you're sending messages with those signals. If I don't see anyone who looks even remotely like me around the big tables, then how do I ever think that I can join that table myself?
1: Of course. Of course. Are you bummed there's not a woman at the top of the presidential ticket?
0: Um, look, I first of all, I have enormous respect for all of the women who ran. I know each of them personally and consider many of them close friends. I'm delighted that Senator Harris uh, has emerged as the vice presidential nominee. I think she's a terrific pick, and I think he had an embarrassment of riches from which to choose. So I won't say that I'm bummed. I know our day is coming. I feel confident of that. Mm. Uh, I worked with Vice President Biden for eight years. I know him very well. I've seen him on hard days as well as good days. And I know that he has the empathy that we were talking about earlier in terms of being a man who is willing to listen to women. He's always surrounded himself by strong women. He's comfortable with strong women. Mm. And so I think that the team will be able to make decisions that are with us in mind. And so, for example, I know one of his uh, top priorities when he was vice president was the Affordable Care Act. And we're really worried now with the loss of Justice Ginsburg about what will happen given that the Trump administration is trying to end the Affordable Care Act. And in so doing, 20 million people will immediately lose their health care. 130 plus million Americans with pre-existing conditions are going to be at risk. Women will no longer be able to have access to preventive care. Young people will not be able to stay on their parents' plans until they're 26 years old. Senior citizens are going to see prescription drugs go up. It's just a disaster. It really is. And, um, and I know around the country, there are people who are struggling with the fear of this. And the one thing I'm sure Vice President Biden will do is everything within his power to protect those benefits. Um, so I think that when we have men in power, we need to make sure that they're men that appreciate women and that are willing to listen to them. And by having chosen a running mate who is a very strong leader in her own right, I think he's got a great partner there.
2: This is Inside the Hive. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it.
1: As you talk about Joe Biden and having worked alongside him and on the best days you know what he's like and on the worst days you know what he's like, what should voters and people listening to this know about what you know? What are some of the stories that you think are most indicative of who he is and who he will be as president of the United States?
0: Yes, so I've been in, in countless meetings with the vice president and what drives his thought process in any context is what's the impact of this decision gonna be on the lives of the American people? Is it gonna make their lives better, easier, or harder? Are we creating the kind of a inclusive community in our country where everybody gets to thrive, not just a few, or are we leaving people uh, by the wayside? And whether we were talking about healthcare or the economy or helping small businesses or foreign policy, he was always very sensitive to what's this going to mean for hardworking Americans out there who are counting on their leaders to have a moral compass that points true North and who realize that government has to not just help a few, but the many. And Mm. I think that's a very, those are important values and kind of core principles. And when he says, we want to build back America better, That is to say, going forward as we emerge, hopefully, from this global pandemic and begin to heal our racial wounds and take steps to reform our criminal justice system to make it more just, as well as our society to make it more equal, Mm. are we making sure that we're not leaving people behind again, as we have done in the past? And so I think that's important. And then I just would tell you like a quick story on a a much more personal note, but I remember when my dad died, uh, he popped up to my office unexpectedly and closed the door and talked to me about grief and loss and Mm. in a way that moved, he moved himself to tears. He surely moved me to tears. And he said something I'll never forget. He said, you know, your tears of sorrow when you think about your dad will eventually turn into smiles. And Mm. he was right. It took a while, but he was right. And it was just such a gift and uh, you know, as busy as he was, he I, if he would buzzed me, I would have popped down or he didn't even have to make time for me. But he always made time for those in his life. And I think that as president of the United States, he said this maybe a week or so ago, and I thought it was a simple phrase, but very powerful. He says, I'm running as a Democrat, but I'm going to be president of all of America. Mm. And I think our country hungers for that right now.
1: Isn't it such a wonderful thing to think about someone who could lead the whole country and care about the whole country and be empathetic and understand the gravity of the world that we live in right now and express genuine uh, emotions about what we're experiencing. It feels like such a novelty now, but but we forget that that, that's actually not a novel thing. That is what leaders have been doing throughout the history of this country.
0: That is what has been the tradition throughout our history. And I think As I said, it's time to get back to that. It's time to have a leader who focuses more on what we have in common than what our differences are, who doesn't fuel the dissension that we have, but actually builds bridges Mm. and, and who's willing to listen, even to people with whom he disagrees, maybe perhaps most closely to those with whom he disagrees, to make sure that the decisions he makes are informed. And then the final strength, I would say, of Vice President Biden and Senator Harris is that they are true public servants. They're not just politicians. They have both spent their entire career devoted to we, the people. What can we do for the people? And it's not about them. It's about us. And I think we also just would relish a leader who wasn't thin-skinned and took everything as a slight towards him, but could absorb a little pain for the greater good, could absorb the fact that when you're the leader, uh, yeah, people might say things that are hurtful and attack you, but it, it should pale in comparison to the privilege you have of serving the whole country. And you should be mm. just attacking those who lash out at you.
1: When you talk about being a public servant and about walking into that building every day with the intention of making the greater good greater, I know that when I talk to other people who have worked in the administration you worked in and, and past administrations, it's really hard to leave because you are in the know about everything you, you know, you you feel the weight of every decision, but you're in the mix. You're in the room where it happens, as uh, they say in Hamilton. But I'm sure that there's like there's a mixture of sadness and fear and a ton of relief when you leave an administration. But I would imagine it's particularly strange when the incoming administration is looks and sounds and feels like the current administration handing the keys over to the Trump administration feels a little bit different than in the past. Is there part of you that has felt like you're, you're itching to get in there and make things right? Or are you happy to be on the other side of things?
0: Well, uh, the way I look at it is maybe pragmatically like this, which is that I had the privilege that no other senior advisor in history has had, in that I served from January 20th of 2009 until January 20th of 2017. No one else has stayed all, all eight years, every single mm. day.
1: So Are, were started, you tired? Are you still tired from that?
0: Well, no, no, I'm not tired. But I'm just saying it was such a privilege to know that I, I, had, I had the entire experience. I didn't cut any of it short. Mm. I was there the whole time. It is a very stressful job. You have, if you take it seriously, an enormous weight to carry. Uh, there wasn't a single day where I was not petrified that we would make the wrong decision mm. that I stayed up all hours of the night, you know, reading and doing research and making sure that when I made a recommendation to the president, that it was as well thought out as it could possibly be. Uh, and it was an extraordinary experience to serve a president who I not only have respected, but now will have known for 30 years next year. Uh, wow. and we, I consider family, so it was as good as it could possibly be.
1: Do you feel like okay. you got anything wrong?
0: Oh, we got plenty wrong. Oh my goodness, all the time we would we would uh, say we would learn from things that that didn't go well. Experience over the course of the eight years, I think we were a lot better in the second term than we were in the first term. Uh, and part of it is we walked into such an incredible nightmare with the economy in a free fall and. The banks are teetering on the board of collapse, the automobile and the in the industry, um, the same needing to shore up state and local government because millions of people were losing their homes and their jobs and, and the tax revenues were going down and two wars. And we I mean, look, we had a lot on our plate. And I think it and I think you're. it's also like a startup when you when you enter the White House, the only people who are there at 1201 um, are the national security professional staff and the people who make the operations of the White House work, but everybody else is a political appointee and you're coming in brand new. We'd not worked together as a team before. And so it took, you know, it took a while in terms of the learning process to really feel like we had our arms around the situation. Um, uh, So, yes, certainly there were things that if I had a do over, I would do them again, but it, but I'm very proud of how much we accomplished, even in spite of, so much Republican opposition to everything we tried to do. Uh, I often wonder what might it have been like if we had had collegial people on the other side of the aisle who weren't Mm. looking to score political victories, but were actually looking out for us, the American people. Um, So, no, I don't itch to go back. I do itch to help ensure that the next president and vice president um, is as strong as possible, and so I offer my advice and counsel to anyone who is interested. Uh, are, you,
1: are, you, are you talking with Vice President Biden or with Senator Harris?
0: Oh, sure. I do. I speak with them. I speak with their teams. I uh, help in any way I can on the campaign, either as a surrogate, focusing on issues that I care about, like criminal justice reform and equity for women and girls. Um, I have said quite clearly I will do anything possible because I think that this is the most important election of my lifetime. And I, I don't want to look up on November 4th and think I didn't do everything humanly possible to help. Uh, mm-hmm. The person who's managing the transition used to be my chief of staff. I'm so proud of him, Johannes Abrahams. Was, I met him in 2007 when he was a freshly minted college graduate in Iowa. And now I've seen how he's grown over the years. And so it's, I am enthusiastic about this next generation of leaders uh, that I know Vice President Biden and Senator Harris will surround themselves with. And um, I'm cheering for them, and I'll help in any way I can outside of government. But in this chapter of my life, I'm going to be doing it as a citizen, which I could argue is the most important office of all.
1: You know, there was an op-ed in the Washington Post this summer. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. But the, the headline of it was basically making the case for you as a running mate for Vice President Biden. It sounds like from what you're saying that you don't have an interest in actually throwing your hat in the ring and, and running for any kind of office. Is that right?
0: Not at this point in my career. And I, as I said early in our conversation, my life is full of chapters. Right. And in this chapter, I have a full plate of uh, issues I care about. I'm chairing the board that Mrs. Obama created called When We All Vote. That's designed to change our culture in the country around voting. I think voting is so important. And 100 million Americans didn't vote in the last presidential election. So we're working on that. I co-chair the United State of Women with Tina Chin, focusing on gender equity. I've joined a group of boards that are consistent with my passions and my commitments. Uh, I'm at the University of Chicago Law School, where I'm surrounded by smart students and incredible faculty, and I'm helping President Obama with his foundation. So I have a full plate. And oh, when I've left out, how could I have left out the most important thing that's changed, which is I have a grandson. And um, I was really close to my grandmother, and my daughter was inseparable from my parents. And so I want to be a present and engaged grandmother. Mm. And I do believe public service should be 24-7, uh, and it's really demanding. And uh, so this si- this chapter of my life, uh, running for office, isn't in the cards. It
1: feels like um, your plate is, is fairly full, and as someone who my grandmother, I'm so lucky that – I have three grandparents around, but my grandmother is my best friend, and I value that relationship more than than really any other relationship.
2: This is Inside the Hive. America has a problem, one that is uniquely ours. On the new season of Long Shadow, I delve into the complicated history of firearms from the Second Amendment to the AR-15.
1: I try to make sense of how we got here and how we might find a path forward from Longlead PRX and Campside Media in
2: collaboration with The Trace. I'm Garrett Graff and this is Long Shadow in Guns We Trust. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I'm I'm curious as someone who spends so much time thinking about voting and that is a an issue that I spend a lot of time thinking about and worrying about are we in for a nightmare? In November, are we make me make me less nervous than I am, or maybe validate my anxiety over it?
0: I think you should be really anxious, and and the reason I say this, I don't have any inside information, but from what uh, President Trump has been signaling, he's already laying the foundation to question the outcome of the election, as we heard from his very own FBI director yesterday, Ugh. there's no indication that voting by mail leads to vote fraud. There just isn't. So the people who are responsible for investigating say that there's no such thing. And we've been voting by mail in many of our states for a very long time. The military has been voting by mail since the Civil War. Right. And so suddenly now raise that in the middle of a pandemic, when you could imagine a lot of people will want to vote by mail, to raise it as a delegitimate way of participating in the democratic process worries me. I also think that because so many people will vote by mail, we may not know the results on election night, and that's fine. I'm perfectly prepared to wait until every ballot is counted, and he should be too. Um, so, I, And I also worry that he wanted the Supreme Court full uh, at the full complement of nine, anticipating some sort of a lawsuit. So all of that leads to your anxiety which is perfectly justified and it's unfortunate it was heartening to see the republicans in um the senate yesterday many of them come forward and reiterate that we will have a smooth transition of power and you know they were all talking from the same talking points basically pushing back on what president trump had said but these are also the same people who said that we shouldn't nominate and confirm a supreme court justice in an election year when President Obama was in office in 2016 and then did a complete reversal now that Justice Ginsburg has passed away. So I don't necessarily take them at their word because of their track record, but uh, your anxiety is totally justified, which is why I encourage everybody to check today to see if you're registered to vote. Mm. Just because you voted in the last race doesn't mean that you, your name didn't get purged for some reason from the from the voter rolls. Make a plan. What are you going to do? Are you going to vote by mail? In which case, request your ballot right away if you're not in a state that sends it to you. If you are going to vote in person, can you do early vote, which would be safer than what we saw in the primaries with those long lines? Um, People choosing between their health and, and their exercising their right to vote. So make a plan and make sure you're registered and know what your rights are. If you show up at the polls, for example, and they say you're not on the list, you have the right to exercise and vote by a provisional ballot. These are all things that we need to empower and equip ourselves so we can participate in this election and try to make it as smooth as possible, given that we know it's already going to be a bit choppy. And I haven't even talked about the potential for foreign interference and these bots on social media and dark money that's advertising untruths about uh, Vice President Biden and Senator Harris, for example, which we've begun to see as well. So- well, there's
1: there's there's like an embarrassment of things that we could be anxious about and, and things that are going to interfere with how our election process happens this go around. And I worry that because people realize how many factors are going to be making it more difficult for us to have that answer and whether or not we can trust that answer – Do you worry that it's going to make people less likely to vote if they feel like the voting system is going to be all messed up and there's going to be foreign interference and will the Republicans accept the numbers that come in? I just I worry that that's going to discourage turnout in this election.
0: Well, that's the headwind we're up against is it could discourage it and so then it's up to the rest of us to say you should be even more determined. If somebody you know is going to try to keep you from voting, what that does to me is it makes me even more determined to vote. Mm. You think you're going to keep me out? I'll show you. I went down, Emily, to uh, Florida in 2012 uh, during President Obama's reelect because I'd heard that there were long, long lines in early vote, and I was on behalf of the campaign. I was going to polling places and to with the intent of encouraging people to stay in line and not get, you know, um, frustrated by how long it was taken, and Almost everybody I encountered in those lines where sometimes they were wrapped around the block were people who said, oh, no, honey, don't worry. I've got my folding chair. I have my picnic basket. I'm here for as long as it takes. The resolve and the commitment that I saw in those folks down there in Miami, I'd like to see all around our country. Mm. Uh, Our our vote is not just a right. uh, It's a privilege, and it's one that we should exercise. And I don't care how hard it is. Don't let anybody take it away from you. We cannot disenfranchise ourselves.
1: Mm. I want to replay that a million times between now and November 3rd. I have one last little line of questioning because as we record this, we are just days away from our first presidential debate. And I'm wondering, as someone who was so heavily involved uh, with the Previous administrations campaigning. What goes into this kind of debate prep? What is a candidate at this moment, a normal candidate, doing at this at this moment, preparing for that kind of moment on a national international stage?
0: Yeah. So a few things. You're trying to uh, take all of your policy positions and find the language will, that will make them as easy to communicate as possible, because this is an opportunity to state affirmatively what you what are your priorities what will you be doing their your first day as president what are, what's on the short list in terms of your legislative goals your executive goals your values your priorities and so debates are often used to communicate what those are so um, the candidates know what they are but you've got to find the language to make it you know punchy and clear and speak directly to the audience and so working on getting those complicated often complicated substantive positions down to a uh, to a coherent um, soundbite is is part of what you do. Uh, Oftentimes in debate prep, you'll have somebody who plays your opponent and then practice on your feet what it's like to respond to questions, the unanticipated things that your opponent might do to try to throw you off balance. I think those who perform the best in debates are the ones who are well-prepared and who go in with a clear objective of what, what they want to accomplish in the debate, but are also prepared for the unexpected uh, by practice. And mm. I, I know Vice President Biden and Senator Harris are taking this preparation seriously and spending a lot of time devoted to it because it's such a good opportunity to speak without the filter of the press directly to the American people with your opponent right there so they can see how do you stack up in real time. And so I think it requires a lot, it should require a lot of discipline and effort.
1: Do you know who's who's standing in for for President Trump, as as Vice President Biden prepares, I don't. Okay, do you? I'm wondering. I don't know if this is something you've talked to him about or his team about, um, or just from your experience. What what would you say to President Trump on a debate stage if you were getting up there in a few days?
0: Oh well, that's an interesting question. Uh, what would I say to him as the moderator or if, if I were the vice president?
1: If you're the candidate standing opposite or or you are working in a campaign advising Vice President Biden what to say, what's the message that you hammer home? What's What's the impact that you want to leave on people who are watching if you're that candidate or a member of that campaign?
0: Well, if you're Vice President Biden, I think you want to provide a clear contrast to the way in which you would lead our country compared to your opponent. Uh, And your opponent, the president, is now running on a track record of three or nearly four years that shows a divisive, polarizing, um, erratic, undisciplined figure at the top. And I think what Vice President Biden will try to do is to make clear how he contrasts with that based on his track record both in the Senate and as vice president and his vision for um, moving the country forward. And he, I would expect that he will challenge President Trump on his track record um, most acutely how abysmally he's handled this COVID-19 epidemic where we have 4% of the world's population and 22% of the world's deaths the last time mm. I looked at the number. Astounding um, debacle that didn't have to happen this way. Mm. And I think you will also challenge him on how he has really tried to fuel the fires of the racial unrest we've seen in the country rather than reckon with the fact that, yes, we do still have systemic racism in our country, and it's up to all of us to play our part to change that. And the fact that he hasn't been unwilling to speak to this issue in any other way than suggesting we militarize our streets, I think is another way that he will contrast markedly with Vice President Biden.
1: Well, I expect to see all of those things echoed on the debate stage. And I'm going to take to heart everything that we talked about in this conversation. I'm so grateful for you taking the time and sharing your wisdom and guidance with all of us today. So thank you. Thank you.
0: You are so welcome. Thank you for having me on.
1: Thank you to my guest, Valerie Jarrett, and of course, my co-host, Joe Hagan. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for all their great production work. And of course, thanks to our sponsors. Please be sure to support them any way you support this podcast. We will see you right here next week.